Well, good morning. We have uh, sermon notes for you. You may have noticed that they were not in uh, the bulletin folded up. So uh, if you would like a copy of the sermon notes, we have some men uh, coming forward to uh, to pass those out. Uh, and then we'll also ask just to... Uh, give an addendum to the announcements that uh, our uh, upcoming all-church camp, which is two uh, weekends from uh, this current weekend, uh, we have scholarships available, so if you're interested in, in coming uh, and would uh, like to attend, uh, please just uh, just contact us and let us know. Uh, we'd love for everybody uh, to come and just enjoy a wonderful weekend uh, of fellowship uh, up north uh, in uh, Donnelly, about two and a half hours or two hours north of us. Uh, if you haven't signed up, you can do so at the website. Uh, looking forward to that time together. Uh, but I'm also looking forward to this time uh, together now. Uh, in our equipping hour this morning, we had uh, our members meeting. Uh, and uh, those aren't the most enjoyable parts of pastoral ministry. Uh, but, uh, but this, getting to, to come together uh, to study God's word, to open it up and hear from God, even as we just sang, uh, and ask for the Lord uh, to feed us with his holy word. And I would invite you uh, to turn with me to Psalm 10 uh, this morning. That's where we will be continuing our study of the, the Psalms uh, and hearing from the Lord this morning. As you're, you're, you're turning there, uh, you, you may have be familiar with uh, one uh, story of Greek mythology uh, that sought to explain evil's presence in the world. And uh, they, they traced back in this myth uh, the existence of evil to a singular woman whom they called Pandora. Uh, and in that myth, uh, when the gods created Pandora, they each bestowed her with a gift and among her birthday presents was a beautifully crafted treasure chest. But inside this box was a host of all of the world's evils. And when Pandora opened the box, uh, all of the evils that we have in the world came out. Uh, and now they, they permeate uh, and taint everything in creation. Slander, greed, jealousy, hate, and every other type of sin are now forever at large according to that Greek myth. And while we know that that myth uh, isn't true, uh, it does tap into our human desire to explain the existence of evil. Right? Every, every culture, every worldview has some type of an explanation of how evil came into existence. Uh, and uh, what's amazing is that sometimes evil is a, is a stumbling block, but good is never a stumbling block. Uh, that concept of good. Uh, and you really don't know evil without the existence also of good. But uh, oftentimes, as I mentioned, the existence of evil is a, is a major stumbling block to those uh, who, who have seen and experienced great suffering and affliction in their own life. And their question that is raised is why would a, a loving an all-powerful God, as described in the Bible, why would he allow such suffering to exist? Why would he allow the, the righteous to suffer? If, if God's all-loving and all-powerful, why would he allow sin into this world? And so the conclusion of many in the world around us is that the existence of evil disproves the existence of the God of the Bible. Now, that is the conclusion that they come to. And while we believe in a God who is absolutely sovereign, perfect in love, and infinite in wisdom, that is the, the, the God that is described to us in the Bible, if we're completely honest, sometimes our own suffering causes us to stumble, even as Christians. 
Am I right? Our own uh, experience in this life. It's like, yes, I understand the theology of who God is, but then it's very difficult to bring my theology back down to my experience because my experience screams so loudly. How can these things be? As we come to Psalm 10 this morning, that's what we, what we begin to see of uh, the wicked prospering in this life. Uh, so not only is there the question of why does God allow injustice and evil into the world, but even, even greater than just suffering is to see those who are oppressing others, those who are committing injustices, to see them prospering and thriving in the world around us. Am I right? And it is a, a, the greatest of stumbling blocks. Seeing the wicked prosper and thrive in this life has led, led, led many people to question everything that they believe. Indeed, why should I strive to love, follow, and obey Christ when the world around me who, who hates him follows their own path and is in open rebellion against him? They, they seem to be doing okay. So what's my incentive to follow Christ? when it seems like those who rebel against him do so well for themselves. One uh, pastor and commentator says this, regarding this topic, he says, It is easy to say that God exists to affirm that morality matters, to believe in divine and human justice, but words carry a hollow echo when the empirical reality of human living indicates precisely the opposite. The reality appears to be that the atheists have the upper hand, that morality really does not matter, and that justice is dormant. At the moment that this reality is perceived in all its starkness, the temptation is at its strongest to jettison the faith, morality, and belief in justice. What good is a belief in a moral life which appear to be so out of place in the harsh realities of an evil world? Indeed, would there not be a certain wisdom in the oppressed joining ranks with the oppressors? Sometimes our experience almost encourages that, right? Why don't I just join the sinful? Why don't I just join the wicked and, and carry on with what they're doing? They seem to be doing well. And as we come to Psalm 10, we come to a psalm of lament, of crying out to God. That's what David is doing as he sees the wicked prospering in the land, and he sees the wicked preying upon the helpless and the poor. Where David, who is king, and by no means necessarily helpless, when we see the, the oppressor even coming and afflicting David, we see the, the power and the influence of these individuals who have taken to the ways of sin and wickedness. As I mentioned last week, as we looked at Psalm 9, Psalm 10 is really the second half of Psalm 9. At one point, these were a single psalm that were divided up later. So everything that we looked at last week, the whole theme of Psalm 9 was looking to and appealing to the divine royal courtroom of God, where we have a holy and righteous king and judge that we can make our appeals to when we are suffering and facing injustice. And here in Psalm 10... David cries out to God as he experiences the prosperity of the wicked. And the whole theme of the psalm is seen actually in the first verse. If you look with me and then read along, David begins, he says, Why, O Lord, do you stand far away? 
Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? In arrogance, the wicked hotly pursue the poor. Let them be caught in the schemes that they have devised. For the wicked boasts of the desires of his soul, and the one greedy for gain curses and renounces the Lord. In the pride of his face, the wicked does not seek him. All his thoughts are, there is no God. His ways prosper at all times. Your judgments are on high, out of his sight. As for all his foes, he puffs at them. He says in his heart, I shall not be moved throughout all generations. I shall not meet adversity. His mouth is filled with cursing and deceit and oppression. And under his tongue are mischief and iniquity. He sits in ambush in the villages. In hiding places, he murders the innocent. His eyes stealthily watch for the helpless. He lurks in ambush like a lion in his thicket. He lurks that he may seize the poor. He seizes the poor when he draws them into his net. The helpless are crushed sink down and fall by his might. He says in his heart, God has forgotten. He has hidden his face. He will never see it. Arise, O Lord. O God, lift up your hand. Forget not the afflicted. Why does the wicked renounce God and say in his heart, you will not call to account? But you do see For you note mischief and vexation, that you may take it into your hands. To you the helpless commits himself, and you have been the helper of the fatherless. Break the arm of the wicked and evildoer. Call his wickedness to account till you find none. The Lord is king forever and ever. The nations perish from his land. O Lord, you hear the desire of the afflicted. You will strengthen their heart. You will incline your ear to do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed, so that man who is of the earth may strike terror no more. What we see in this psalm are different responses to the hiddenness of God. That's what David is lamenting. He says, God, why do you stand far off? Why are you far away? And that feeling that God isn't present invokes different responses in different people. What we see are these responses, but what does the hiddenness of God prompt within humanity? And this psalm is going to show us three responses prompted by the hiddenness of God. The fact that we can't see God and speak directly to Him and hear back from Him makes it seem like he is far away and hidden from us. And what we're going to see are these three responses in this psalm. Verses 1 and 2, we're going to see that the hiddenness of God prompts perplexed lament in the hearts of the helpless. And in verses 3 through 11, we're going to see that the hiddenness of God prompts prideful self-confidence in the hearts of the wicked. And then lastly, in verses 12 to 18, that the hiddenness of God prompts prayer, prayerful dependence in the lives of his people. But look with me first at, at verses 1 and 2, where we see this prompt of 
perplexed lament in the hearts of the helpless. You know, in these first two verses, David's going to cry out to God. And he's going to summarize his case against the wicked. As we saw in verse 1, he's saying, God, why do, you, why do you hide yourself? This is my time of trouble. God, this is when I need you the most. And you hide yourself now? God, why do you stand far off when I need you so desperately? That's the question that David asks. Then he's going to summarize his case against the wicked. He says, God, this is why I need your help, because the wicked are oppressing and attacking me. And in verse 2, we see this, this summary. At an arrogance, the wicked hotly pursue the poor. David says, Lord, they are running rampant. The, the wicked are out of control, and whom they are devouring are the most helpless among the land. God, we need you to act. And in the middle of this, God, where are you? David feels abandoned and hopeless, and yet he still prays to God. And he makes this request. He says, let them be caught in the schemes that they have devised. Just, Lord, let them, let their own plans for evil, let their own plans for wickedness be the, the, the trap that destroys them. And that is a prayer that God always delights to answer. God loves to make those reversals and allows uh, the consequences of sin to fall upon us. It's that same principle that we see later on in Galatians, that you will reap what you sow. What you plant is what you're going to harvest. And that is David's prayer here. And we see this most clearly in the book of Esther. Esther's an, an amazing uh, book. And uh, in that book we see uh, the villain is a man named Haman the Agagite. And, and Haman is plotting against Mordecai, a Jew. And Haman uh, goes so far as to, to plot Mordecai's demise that he builds a 75-foot high gallow to hang Mordecai from. So, hey, I'm going to execute him and it's going to be public. But in a reversal of fortunes, Haman actually has to honor Mordecai and walk through the city streets uh, with Mordecai riding a, a horse behind him, giving him honor and respect. And then later on, it is Haman who is hung and executed on the gallows that he himself built to execute another. Now, that is David's prayer here. Lord, the evil that is being planned, may you turn it back upon the wicked. God delights to reverse the fortunes of those who are oppressed. And yet David is perplexed here as to why that hasn't happened. And David prays this. He almost seems shocked. Because God, you, you normally don't operate this way. Normally you, you, are, you are quick to, to bring justice. But Lord, why are you so far on this occasion? Why are you waiting so long to show yourself? Because God, you're kind of acting out of character. And God's inaction makes him feel hidden rather than close by and able to help. But we should also notice this in these first two verses, that David is perplexed, and he's pouring out all of his emotion to God. We're allowed to do that. We're allowed to come to God and to cry out to Him and say, God, I'm confused. I don't understand. Why are you bringing this upon me? But also notice how David does that. We're allowed to bring every emotion to God, but we need to do so in faith. Even as David comes to God lamenting, pouring out his soul, that he's still turning to God. 
And he's not bringing in a big theoretical discussion about the goodness and the character of God. He's just saying, Lord, why do you hide yourself? Why do you stand far off? This is a a personal discussion, not a theological debate. And we are called, even when we do not understand what all God is doing, we are called to trust him, to cry out to him, to pour out all of our emotions in a spirit of faith and trust. And that is how David begins his song. By showing us that the hiddenness of God prompts perplexed lament, drives us to pray. But secondly, verses 3 through 11, David presents his case against the wicked. And as he describes his case against the wicked, we're going to see this second response to, to how people, what they are prompted to do when, when God is not seen and not clearly visible... The helpless are driven to prayer, but the wicked are driven to something else. A prideful self-confidence in the hearts of the wicked. And what we see here is a, is a description, almost the, the, one of the best descriptions in all of Scripture, of how the wicked act. Martin Luther has said this, he says, There is not, in my judgment, a psalm which describes the mind, the manners, the works, the words, the feelings, and the fate of the ungodly with so much propriety, fullness, and light as this psalm. David is going to describe what the wicked look like, what drives them, what they do, how they speak. And I've summarized the character of the wicked with that phrase of they're driven and they're prompted toward a a prideful self-confidence. But David goes into greater specifics than that. If you follow along with me in these verses... He begins by saying that the wicked are arrogant. And this is in verses 3 and 4. It says, For the wicked boasts of the desires of his soul, and the one greedy for gain curses and renounces the Lord. In the pride of his face, the wicked does not seek him. All his thoughts are, there is no God. David says, hey, the, the wicked are boastful. And what do they boast about? Their own desires. That's what is constantly on our lips. That's what they are constantly speaking on. And in verse 4, it says that their pride is visible upon their face. The ancient uh, Athenians, when they were uh, doing trials, uh, they would do them in the dark. And and the reason they would hold trials in the dark was to mask uh, the face of the one who was on trial. Because they didn't want that person who was on trial to give himself away, so to speak. If he was guilty, they said, hey, if we can look at his face, we're going to be able to assume uh, if he's guilty or innocent. And so they they didn't want that to influence the judge, so they held their trials in the dark. Charles Spurgeon says of this, he says, There is more to be learned from the motions of the muscles of the face than from the words of the lips. Because honesty shines in the face, but villainy peeps out at the eyes. That's when... Parents, when you're looking at your kids and you really want to know if they're telling the truth, you say, look at me. And, and you really can know if they're lying, if they're being honest. You can tell when, you're, when your child is going to be immovable on this discussion, right? They, they get that, that face, they set in, they kind of dig their heels in, and they stand tall. You tell, okay, this isn't going to go anywhere, so let's revisit this in a bit. But that is the arrogance of the wicked. His pride is on his face, and he boasts of the desires of his soul. He's greedy for gain. 
and curses and renounces the Lord. Then in verse 5, what we see is that the wicked is prosperous. Verse 5 says, His way prospers at all times. Your judgments are on high, out of his sight. And as for all his foes, he puffs at them. And as you just look at the world around us, the wicked do seem to prosper, right? There's a temporary result to sin. It seems that the wicked prosper. They're free from divine judgment or human oppression. And it's, it's amazing. Their, their temporary success and their temporary prosperity kind of gives them the air of having some type of authority or wisdom. You ever thought about uh, if an unsuccessful person tries to, to throw their weight around and to influence others, they'll most likely be laughed at. But when a, when a celebrity gets up and proclaims the same message, they're received with great applause and praise, right? And what's amazing is in our own culture, celebrities who are famous for acting and singing are somehow heralded as being experts on social and moral issues. They're great at entertaining and now suddenly they have a voice and people receive that voice as if it has some great moral authority. That's why the Oscars have become this, this huge uh, pulpit for Hollywood to proclaim their own worldview and to preach. And that is what we see here, that the apparent prosperity of the wicked gives them great influence and great power. And everybody that, who opposes them, what does he do at the end of this verse? It says he puffs at them. Puff, right? Type of scoffing. Kind of that, that disregarding. Very interesting word here. Let me just say that. Don't puff at me. But, but that's, what, that's how he is describing the wicked. And the wicked, when they have success, when they have prosperity, they feel that they are in the right. And that nobody can tear them down. Nobody can disregard what they say because they are in the right. And that feeds right in with their pride and their arrogance. Because they're, because they're prideful and then they're prosperous, that then feeds into what we see in verse 6. He says in his heart, I shall not be moved. Throughout all generations, I shall not meet adversity. See that the, the wicked are arrogant, they're prosperous, and they feel like they are immovable. They feel like they cannot be touched or torn down. Again, they feel this because of their, their own arrogance and their success. There's a story from World War II that uh, Benito Mussolini, the, the dictator of Italy, he, he was uh, shot and wounded and almost killed, but then he laughed it off, saying, the bullet has never been made that can kill me. And that's the attitude of the wicked. They say, hey, I am immovable. Nobody is going to be able to, to influence me or show that I am wrong. No one's going to be able to attack me and succeed. That is their, their mindset. Verse 7, we also see that, that the wicked speak slanderously. His mouth is filled with cursing and deceit and oppression. Under his tongue are mischief and iniquity. And it's amazing how Scripture speaks of the power of the tongue. I know we're in Idaho, and Idaho is it's a great state for bearing arms. Uh, people here are very passionate about uh, the Second Amendment. There's a lot of guns in Idaho. A lot of uh, citizens own one or ten uh, of them. 
And that's okay, but every single one of us has a, has a weapon more dangerous than a gun. And that's our tongue. And the wicked put it to use. They use their tongue as a weapon, where as Christians we can be guilty of using it and damaging sometimes unintentionally and we grieve afterwards. But the wicked speak slanderously. They use their words with the intention of hurting. The intention of maiming, the intention of setting ablaze a forest fire. So we see in James's letter, James chapter three, verses six through eight, says, "And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell." For every kind of beast and bird of, of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind. But no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. And the wicked understand that. And they use it accordingly. C.S. Lewis, uh, in speaking about uh, the Psalms, and the description of the wicked in the Psalms, he says this, I thought this was very insightful. C.S. Lewis says, I half expected that in a simpler and more violent age, speaking of Bible times, when more evil was done with the knife and the big stick and the firebrand, less would be done by talk. But in reality, the psalmists mention hardly any kind of evil more than this one which the most civilized societies share. It is all over the Psalter. One almost hears the incessant whispering, tattling, lying, scolding, flattery, and circulation of rumors. It says, no historical readjustments are here required. We are in the world we know. It is the, the world of the Psalms. We see the use and the abuse of the tongue to slander and tear down others. And the wicked person is characterized by a slanderous tongue, by a mouth that deceives and curses and oppresses others, who spreads lies and deceit. That's what David says here. But not only do, do the wicked use their mouths, they don't just stop at using their words for evil, they also commit evil acts. And that's what we see in verses 8 through 10. We see that the wicked uses violence. It says that he sits in ambush in the villages. In hiding places, he murders the innocent. His eyes stealthily watch for the helpless. He lurks in ambush like a lion in his thicket. He lurks that he may seize the poor. He seizes the poor when he draws them into his net. As David describes the, the actions of the wicked, look at these illustrations that he uses. He, he, he points to the wicked as a murderer, as someone who lies in wait, waiting to ambush the helpless, as a highwayman, committing murder. Second illustration he uses says this, this murderer, the, the wicked, sits in ambush, but he lurks in ambush like a lion in his thicket. Hey, the, this is the, the picture that he draws. You, you ever see on the Discovery Channel or something else, of a, a lion uh, stalking his prey through the tall grass, just waiting for them to, to hesitate or for, for the, the slow and the straggler, that the little baby to get behind, and then the lion pounces, just waiting to ambush his prey. 
That is how the wicked act. And then in the second half of verse 9 and in verse 10, it says that the wicked is not only a lion, but he's also a hunter. As he lurks that he may seize the poor, and he seizes the poor when he draws them into his net. And when the wicked capture the, the poor, when they capture the, the helpless and the needy, they are crushed. There's, you see the, in verse 10, it says, The helpless are crushed, sink down, and fall by his might. And, and I think that's probably the most discouraging factor about the wicked, is that sometimes they succeed. Oftentimes they succeed. And as I read that, think through some of my own experience, but also it just breaks your heart to think about that, to think about the actions of the wicked. Those illustrations draw our attention to the injustice of this world, do they not? That is what is most discouraging, and that is what grieves David the most. That the wicked sometimes, oftentimes, succeed, and when they do, they crush the helpless. But then there's a there's a general principle also about the wicked, and it's seen in verse 11 and several other verses that the wicked is a practical atheist. You look with me at verse 11. And he says in his heart, God has forgotten. He has hidden his face. He will never see it. But but also look with me back to verse 3 where it says that the, the one greedy for gain curses and renounces the Lord. And at the end of verse 4, it says, All his thoughts are, there is no God. And then if you, if you jump down to verse 13, it says, Why does the wicked renounce God and say in his heart, You will not call to account? All of those verses show us the mindset, the philosophy of the wicked. What do they build their life upon is atheism. And you could kind of lump atheists in, in two big categories. One would be the theoretical atheist uh, who wants to talk proofs of God and big, big philosophy. Uh, there's a, the theoretical kind, and there's the practical kind. And, and the practical atheist may even give lip service to God. They may even say, yeah, God exists, but what does this, the wicked say? God exists, but he's not going to judge me. He's not going to call me to account. He's hidden his face. He's not seeing what I'm doing. What we see here in the wicked is that they are practical atheists. They don't get into all of the theoretical. They just live as if God does not exist. One pastor says that functional atheists, demonstrated here, of whom the psalmists speak, are a most dangerous species of human being. Ultimately, their character is determined not simply by dispensing with belief in God, but more specifically by dispensing with the concepts and precepts of morality and justice. And it is the absence of morality which makes the functional atheist dangerous. And that's, that's one of the results of the hiddenness of God. Now, because God is invisible, doesn't regularly come and, and proclaim and trumpet his own existence other than through what has been made, that his hiddenness prompts the wicked to act as they do. Because if God was visible at any given point in time, and every time we send a voice from above 
came and announced our sin and then judged us, would we sin? No, we'd be terrified, right? The wicked act as they do because of the hiddenness of God. Additionally, what we see here is that this is our natural tendency. Our natural tendency as human beings is to build a theology that supports what we want to do, right? We say, hey, this is what my heart desires. Now let me create a a belief system that will support what I want to do. And if you just step back for a moment, what's the primary worldview that our culture is embracing and proclaiming so loudly and so boldly right now? Atheistic evolution. That is what is being proclaimed everywhere. And why is it being proclaimed everywhere? Because who is removed from that picture? God. The atheistic evolutionary worldview pushes God away. It echoes exactly what we see in Psalm 10. There is no God. You will never be called to account. You're just bacteria that has evolved. Go do what you want to do. That's the worldview, the practical atheism of the wicked. And But contrary to our natural tendency, what is it that we are called to do as Christians? Not to build our own theology, not build a bear. Uh, you just go, oh, I want this, a little bit of that, and then I'll, I'll have my own little God that I can create and control and all of that. No, we are called to build our theology, our lifestyle is to be based upon a theology of God's Word. That's again why we, we sing that the Word would shape and fashion us. Not, Lord, can we shape and fashion your Word to make it say exactly what we want this practical atheism of the wicked is just following the natural sinful tendency of fallen humanity. And we are all guilty of it to one degree or another. And we need the word to shed light upon where and how we are doing that in our own lives. But we could ask this question as well. Why does David go into all of this detail here? Why why does he give all of these details about who and what and how the wicked act and think and what they say and what they do. Why does he say all of that? Why does he paint this picture of a God who's hidden and the wicked who are thriving and prospering? I think it's this. What type of emotion stirs up within you when you read that? It's anger, right? Well, we should be angered by the injustice that we see on these pages and in the world around us. I think that's why David goes into these details. To spark us to anger because anger sparks us to action. Now that is what David is prompting us towards. of saying this is how the wicked respond to the hiddenness of God. But we're called to, to respond differently. Dale Ralph Davis, a great uh, preacher of the Old Testament, says that the believer's life is a war, a lifelong conflict. And pieces like Psalm 10 are meant to aggravate you, to anger you, to sadden you, to keep you from forgetting that your life is always at odds with the wicked. Are not these descriptions of the wicked having success, trampling the helpless, meant to disturb and upset us and therefore drive us to prayer? Now that is David's intention here, and that is also exactly what David does in the third portion of this psalm, verses 12 to 18, where we see the the third response to the hiddenness of God. 
Now, the hiddenness of God prompts prayerful dependence in the lives of his people. And David begins his prayer directing it to God in verse 12. He makes three simple petitions to God in that verse. The first is, Arise, O Lord. It's a very simple prayer. Saying, Hey God, seems like you've been standing far off. Seems like you've been hidden. God, now is the time to act. But as he quotes that, he's also quoting an Israelite battle cry. See, that... that phrase, arise, O Lord, is what Moses told the nation to call out uh, when they were in the wilderness and the glory of God had moved and they were going to get ready to break camp and follow their leader. They were getting ready to follow the glory of God somewhere else. Numbers 10.35 said that they were to call out, arise, O Lord, and let your enemies be scattered and let those who hate you flee before you. That's what they were supposed to say whenever the Ark of the Covenant set out. So when David echoes that, he's saying, hey God, now is the time for battle. Now is the time for you to respond to the injustice that we are seeing and experiencing. Arise, O Lord. He says, O God, lift up your hand. And in, in Hebrew culture, the, the hand is representative of power and opposition. So when David says, hey, God, lift up your hand, show your power, Lord. Show who you are and show your hand against the wicked. Show that you are in opposition. Show that when you rise up in power, you're not going to help the wicked, that you are going to oppose them. You are going to help the helpless and those who are being oppressed by the wicked. And may the wicked feel your hand upon them. But then and also in all of that, David says, forget not the afflicted. He says, Lord, don't forget those who are being oppressed and who are being downtrodden. But does God ever do that? Does God forget the afflicted? No, if you, if you look back to what we looked at last week, Psalm 9, verse 18, says, for the needy shall not always be forgotten, and the hope of the poor shall not perish forever. God doesn't forget about the weak and the helpless and the poor and the needy, those who are afflicted, God never forgets about them. While David painted a vivid and demoralizing picture of the prosperity of the wicked, he still has hope that God, who is currently hidden, will arise and act on their behalf. That is what David is sure of. The hiddenness of God prompts prayerful dependence in the lives of his people. Earlier, I, I mentioned that the myth about Pandora's box. Right? And according to the myth, there was one evil that didn't escape the box. Anyone know what that, that evil was that didn't escape Pandora's box? It was hope. Like, how is hope an evil? How is hope an evil that, that needed to be contained? Well, in the Greek mindset... Hope sometimes led people to be thinking that they could, uh, or I guess it would, it would keep people from accepting their fate. That if somebody had hope in a hopeless situation, rather than just accepting what was to come, it would continue to hope for deliverance. So in that Greek mindset, hopelessness, where you just say, okay, oh well, 
would lead people to just accept their plight. And so they viewed hope as an evil. And the, the, the prominent existential philosopher, Friedrich Nietzsche, suggested that in an extended time of difficulty, hope may prove worse than hopelessness. He says, for example, prisoners who are sentenced to life imprisonment without the possibility of parole tend to adjust better to their situation than prisoners who hope for the day of their release. Those who have life imprisonment without the possibility of parole, they, they, their fate is hopeless and they just learn to be content. You're like, that, that, that's kind of strange. Right? To say that to, to have hope be viewed as an evil and hopelessness be viewed as something as good, just accept your fate. Very glad that the Lord doesn't lean in that direction. That the Lord gives us hope rather than viewing hope as an evil. We see hope as a good and glorious and great thing. And our hope is to be found in the character and the worthiness of God. And that's what we see as David continues his prayer. He says, Arise, O Lord, O God, lift up your hand and forget not the afflicted. And then David goes into why we can hope in the Lord. God doesn't just leave us to be hopeless. God doesn't just point out all of the, the prosperity of the wicked and say, Hey, look, they're winning. They're destroying the poor. Now just be content with that. God doesn't say that. He says, No, look to me. And this is what we see David do. David gains hope in the truth that God sees. It says, hope in God's sight. Look at verses 13 and 14. It says, why does the wicked renounce God and say in his heart, you will not call to account? And in verse 14, those first four words are beautiful. It says, but you do see. You note mischief and vexation that you may take it into your hands to you, the helpless commits himself. You have been the helper of the fatherless. That is what we see here, that we are to gain hope in the fact that God is aware of every one of our circumstances. He knows everything that you're facing. He sees the injustice that you're seeing. He sees the injustice that you're experiencing. He says, have hope that God does see. And have hope that God does hear. That's what we see in verse 17. That God hears the desires of the afflicted. God is aware of all that goes on in his creation. I love Proverbs 20, verse 12. It says, the hearing eye and this, I'm sorry, the hearing ear, eyes don't hear. Uh, the hearing ear and the seeing eye, the Lord has made them both. I remember the first time I read that, I'm like, what is that talking about? Well, it wants us to think about the fact that God gave us eyes to see and ears to hear, which show us that God is both a seeing God and a hearing God. God's not going to create eyes and ears that see and hear if he can't do those things himself. That's what we are called to contemplate and meditate. There are no actions outside of his knowledge and no words of the heart or of the mouth that he has not heard. And may that give us hope in our affliction, that God has seen all that we are experiencing. That's the first source of hope for the believer. And the second source of hope for the believer is seen in verses 15 and 16. We're to hope in God's reign. David says, Break the arm of the wicked and evildoer. Call his wickedness to account till you find none. 
The Lord is king forever and ever. And the nations perish from his land. Verse 15 uses strong language, doesn't it? Like, did David just, just pray for bodily harm upon somebody else? Well, when he says break the arm of the wicked, we already already mentioned in Hebrew culture, the hand and the arm, what do they represent? Someone's power, someone's authority. So when David prays for the Lord to break the arm of the wicked and the evildoer, he says, Lord, take their power from them. Take away the ability for them to sin against others. Don't let them continue to act as they have been acting. This is a prayer against the power of the wicked, not their literal bodies. And David's prayer is for God to keep them from having the power to afflict and oppress others. And David wants the wicked to be proven wrong. As we saw in verses 4 and 13, the wicked have wrongly believed that they will never be called to account. So I'm never going to have to stand before God for any of this. And what's David's prayer here? Lord, prove them wrong. It says, call their wickedness to account till you find none. It says, Lord, judge each one of their wicked actions until there's nothing left to judge. That's what he's asking for here. He wants them to be proven wrong and brought to account before a holy and righteous judge. And David has absolute and supreme confidence that God will do that. Because what does he say in verse 16? The Lord is king. The implication is of the Lord being king is that he is also the judge. And it's not the king who will perish, but the nations will perish from whose land? God's land. All of the wicked will perish out of God's earth and be taken into eternity, where they will be judged righteously. That's the second source of hope for us as believers. First, that God sees. Second, we are to hope in God's reign. And then thirdly, what we see here is that we are to hope in God's strength. This is in verses 17 and 18. It says, O Lord, you hear the desire of the afflicted. You will strengthen their heart. You will incline your ear to do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed, so that man who is of the earth may strike terror no more. This is what we can rest assured of, that when God does see... And when that God does hear, what will he do? He's not just going to be like, yeah, I see and I hear. I'm not going to do anything about it. God will act. God's character and track record demonstrate that he will bring justice to the orphan and to the oppressed. There's those two promises. You will strengthen their heart and you will incline your ear to do justice. That is what David is reflecting upon. God, you will vindicate yourself. You will not always be hidden. There will be a time when there will be no more oppression or preying upon the helpless. There will no more be an oppression of the weak and the poor. Justice will be delivered in every situation. But that justice will take place when Christ is ruling and reigning, as has been promised in his word. And the world is judged according to his righteous and holy judgment. But I think these last two verses bring us the most hope. And why is that? Well, because sometimes when we're in the middle of persecution and affliction, if we're being totally honest here for a second, 
Sometimes when we're in the middle of a difficult situation, it's not encouraging for somebody to come up and be like, oh, you know what? The Lord will make everything right someday. Sometimes that's just not helpful. Sometimes that's not as encouraging as we think it is. Because when we're in the middle of times of trouble, what do we want? We want help now. Lord, yes, that that is somewhat encouraging to know that the wicked, those persons who are afflicting me now, will be judged righteously one day. But Lord, help me now. Give me relief now, Lord. That's what we want. But notice what is promised here in verse 17. It says, you will strengthen their heart. See, we're not... We're not immediately promised justice and righteousness. We're not immediately promised deliverance, but we are promised strength. We are promised strength to endure whatever circumstances we are facing. We are promised that the Lord is with us in those circumstances. If you think of 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13, it says, No temptation has overtaken you. That is not common to man. But God is faithful. And He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, He will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. In the middle of trials, we're given hope, not of immediate deliverance, but that God is with us in those trials. That He will strengthen our hearts to be able to abide under that trial. To be able to endure it. Not to escape from out from under it. That's usually what we want, right? God, just take me out of here. I'm under this extreme trial. Just put me over here where it's nice and happy. But no, it says, God, you will strengthen me. You will enable me to endure and abide under the trial. Whatever that trial may be. God will strengthen us. That is the promise that we have. That is the assurance that David gives us. And that is David's own confidence. We can find hope in knowing we've not been abandoned by God to an evil and unjust world. God is with us in our trial and He will make all things right also in the future. That's what we see here in this psalm. Far from implying divine abandonment or just hopelessness and getting content with our circumstances, we are to find our hope in the character and faithfulness of God, the character and faithfulness of Christ who has given his life for ours. He's not going to do that in vain. He's going to save and rescue us and remain with us. That's why he sends his spirit to dwell within us. That's why later on, again, in, in the Gospel of John, Jesus says, it's good that I go because I'm going to send the Spirit who will be with you, dwelling within you at all times. In this psalm, we see that the hiddenness of God prompts perplexed laments in the helpless, in the middle of our affliction. We also see that the hiddenness of God prompts the wicked to a prideful self-confidence where they think they can't be moved, where they think that they are in the right. But we can also rest assured that God uses His own hiddenness to prompt us to a prayerful dependence upon Him. As we see and experience injustice in the world around us, we, we have to turn to God. That is where our hope is to be found. So the truths that we see in this psalm, but there's one more thing I think we need to take away from this. 
It's really easy to listen to a sermon like this, to read a psalm like this, and to be thinking of other people, right? To be thinking of that person who, who's lied against you or oppressed you or attacked you. It's really, really easy to read this psalm and be identifying ourselves as those who are helpless and afflicted. Did anybody in here as I'm preaching say, oh, I'm the wicked. That's me, right? Uh, 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 no, nobody, we don't naturally think that way. But here's what we have to understand. That at the moment of sin, we all become the practical atheists that were described in this psalm. In the moment of sin, what is it we're thinking about? What I want. What I'm focused on. When a husband and wife are at odds with each other and in the middle of an argument, and anger and, and venomous words and slander is being spoken, what are their thoughts? They're not thinking about, hey, I'm going to have to give an account for the words that I speak to my spouse right now. Because if they were thinking about that, they wouldn't be speaking as we so often do. Right? At the moment of sin, we all become practical atheists. We're not contemplating that everything that we do, everything that we say is going to be brought before a holy and righteous judge, and that we're going to have to give an account to him. No, we echo the very same thing of what we see here in Psalm 10. And even more convicting is that the Apostle Paul quotes this psalm, verse 7, in Romans chapter 3. Why don't you turn with me over to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3, Paul is making a summary of this airtight legal argument. Romans chapter 1, Paul has said that the Gentiles, all of the nations, stand guilty before a holy God. Because the existence of God has been demonstrated in what he has created so that everybody stands guilty. There's nobody who can stand before God and say, I didn't know you existed because look at, just look at the world around you. It didn't come here by accident. So Romans chapter 1, Paul wraps up all of the nations, all of the Gentiles, says they are guilty and stand condemned before God. Then in Romans chapter 2, Paul does the same thing for the Jews. Does all of the Jews stand guilty before God because they've broken his law? Even if they've taught the law, they've broken it and be obeyed it inconsistently. Then when he gets to Romans chapter 3, he's going to summarize and bring everybody together and says, say all of humanity stands condemned before a holy and righteous God. And he points to the Psalms. So many different psalms. And he quotes Psalm 10, verse 7, which is speaking about the wicked. But Paul helps us to see we are all wicked. We all speak as described. We all do what the wicked do. Look at me, Romans chapter 3, verse 9. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. 
The venom of asps is under their lips. And here's, here's the quote from Psalm 10. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood and their paths are, are ruin and misery and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. See, the words of the wicked describe each and every one of us. This isn't something that to just say, hey, I'm that helpless and afflicted person. The wicked are just oppressing me. No, there are times when we are the wicked, when we are the oppressor. So as we read this psalm, what we're to take away is we understand where our hope comes from when we are the helpless, when we are the afflicted. But then we also need to see our own guilt. We also need to see our own inability to abide to God's righteous standard. And so our hope is to be found in Christ while being oppressed. And our hope is to be found in Christ while we are the oppressor. As we repent and turn to him, acknowledging our sin. Lord, please forgive me for being a practical atheist so frequently and so often in my relationships. That is what Psalm 10 should show us. Our tendency towards practical atheism. And may our prayer be that we would not live as if God doesn't exist, but may we always live in the presence of God. May we always live with the understanding and the mindset that we are going to be called to account with every word and every action. Is that going to transform how you speak and how you live? Absolutely. May we pray to that end together now. Amen? Let's pray. Father, you are a righteous and holy God. Lord, you are aware of the thoughts and the intentions of our hearts. Lord, you are aware of every single injustice in your creation. Lord, you see and know when we are oppressed, when we are being attacked and maligned and unjustly slandered, Lord, you are aware of that. You see. And you still sit on your throne. And we take courage and find hope in the fact that that you do see. That you will bring justice in the future and that you also strengthen us now. Father, we thank you for those truths. But Lord, may you also impress upon our hearts and minds. May you pierce our hearts with the truth that we ourselves at times are the oppressor, that we are the wicked and the slanderer. And Lord, may you pierce our hearts and then may you bind them up with the truth of the gospel. Lord, in all the ways that we see our practical atheism, in all the ways that we are prompted to sin when we See your hiddenness. Lord, help us to see them, to acknowledge them, to repent of them, and to put on Christ. Lord, he is our hope. He is our salvation. Lord Jesus, we thank you for going to the cross, for experiencing the wrath that our sin deserved, for granting us salvation through faith, And Lord, now may you work in us and sanctify us. And may we never 
ever again live as if you are not Lord and Savior of our lives. May we always remember that you will call us to account. And Lord, we praise you that when you call us to account as believers, that we will not be judged for our sins, but we will be judged for rewards. And may we be found faithful in that day. We ask, we beg, we plead in your name. Work in us and answer this prayer. Amen.